Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Jean-Francois, or JF, Escoulier is the VP and Director of R&D for The Running Clinic. He's also a Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. JF's research focuses on managing patellofemoral pain in runners. He's very experienced in assessing running biomechanics and footwear, and he's also interested in the effects of running on knee osteoarthritis. In today's episode of JOSPT Insights, JOSPT social media editor Paul Blasey asks the questions. JF started by sharing the headlines of his research on running shoes. Then he guides us through helping patients choose the best running shoe to help improve performance and hopefully avoid injuries. JF and Paul, it's over to you. Hello, JF. Hi, Paul. How are you? First of all, thanks for having me on this podcast. I think it's a really interesting topic to talk about footwear. My background in terms of uh, running shoe research, uh, I've done a few things and a few different study designs helped develop a consensus definition uh, for minimalist shoes and designing a reading scale, which is the minimalist index. I've also participated in a pilot randomized controlled trial to look at the effects of, of shoes on injury risk and uh, during a half marathon training program, so minimalist versus traditional shoes. I've also looked at the, the biomechanical aspects of footwear, so how do different shoe characteristics influence running biomechanics and joint forces. Uh, that would be in injured runners or uninjured runners. Um, more recently, I've conducted also uh, a survey on, uh, you know, what do people think about running shoes and injury? Are you more at risk of injury if you have a specific shoe or how can shoes be used uh, to prevent or treat injury? And lastly, I've also touched a bit on the performance side of things, which is not my area of expertise, but uh, we tested, uh, we compared the effects of minimalist shoes in, in the Nike Vaporfly on running economy and performance. I think one of the things that you perhaps mentioned there that you're best well or you're most well known for is the minimalist in- index, because I think it's one of the only classification scales for she- running shoes that I'm aware of. Could you talk a little bit more to people about how you classify shoes using that index and how you validate it? That project came up because, you know, in 2014, around that time, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, do running shoes uh, cause injuries or not? And, and what are they doing for biomechanics? How do they alter biomechanics? And at that point, we, we didn't really know what a minimalist shoe was. Uh, some people were classifying shoes and studies as minimalist or not, uh, but they were a completely different shoes. So we decided to reach out to a group of 42 experts from 11 countries and, and we designed that, uh, that rating scale that you just mentioned, the minimalist index. The group of experts basically decided to include five different criteria to give a rating from 0% minimalist to 100% minimalist. And the five criteria are the weight of the shoe, the stack height or the thickness of the heel, um, the heel to toe drop, which is the difference between the heel thickness and the forefoot thickness, the flexibility of the shoe, and then the technologies uh, for motion. So each subscale is worth 20% of the score. And like I said, you get a percentage. And that gives you an idea of how minimalist the shoe is. It's not a quality score. It's a it's more of a the level of minimalism. 
And for those who aren't necessarily as familiar with the the running lingo, minimalist chi means to mimic a barefoot motion. Is that the best definition, would you say? It's kind of part of the definition. The consensus definition was uh, footwear that tends to not interfere with the natural movement of the foot uh, based on the, the stack height, the weight, the flexibility, the drop in the technology. Different people will react differently, obviously, to different shoes. So therefore, in your opinion, given that we, you felt that it was necessary to produce the scale to race shoes, do you feel that running shoes contribute to injury prevention or potentially the recovery from injury? That's a great question, Paul. And, and you know, I'll try to keep it relatively brief. Maybe we can split that question into two parts, the prevention part first and then recovery from injury. So in terms of prevention, uh, I mean, the, the recent survey that we did, we asked people and there were 2,500 people at study. We asked them if they thought shoes were important injury prevention in runners. And people rated it on average as 7.6 out of 10, zero being not important at all, 10 being very important. So in, in people's mind, in the runner, uh, in the runner's mind, in the running community, it is very important. But what's the literature really saying on that? Well, we know that in terms of prevention, you know, prescribing a type of shoe based on the type of foot doesn't work. Uh, the shoe cushioning, the drop, uh, all these different features, they don't seem to matter really in terms of injury. What can cause injuries is actually transitioning from one shoe to another. And that's one of the key points that we wanted to address with the minimalist index. Because if you say, well, you know, I'd like to change my shoes and I'd like to maybe change the category of shoes that I'm using. Well, maybe you could get an idea of how quickly you can transition so you can avoid that injury. So if you're adapted to your shoes, you're not injured, you don't want to perform better, I don't think you should change the kind of shoe you're wearing. But maybe if you're injured uh, or you want to perform better, there are reasons. And that's why we, we develop that scale to try and guide people. So we know that clinical work is a bit of a mixture of blending art and science in that sense, in that the evidence doesn't always follow exactly what we do. So in, in your approach to clinical work, how do you go about that conversation with someone and what advice do you give when you're potentially going to change someone's shoes to help them either gain performance or recover from injury? Yeah, like you said, it, it's never a, a black or white uh, answer to that. It's, it depends on the patient, obviously. But, you know, in terms of treatment, using the shoes is, is never my priority, but it's certainly part of the puzzle. And, you know, I always consider first modifications to their training program before changing the shoe. I also consider gait modifications, exercises. Uh, I just feel like, you know, sometimes shoes get they get tossed on the side and people say, just do whatever you want with your shoes, but they can actually be used to shift forces to different body parts. And that's how I use them. In uh, as an example, you know, if you want to protect the foot in someone with a foot injury, well, you may want more cushioning. You may want a stiffer shoe to help decrease the load on that foot that's maybe recently injured. But if someone comes in with persistent knee pain and they've had that for five years, well, perhaps shifting loads away from the knee can help that patient in the long term. Recommending gait modifications to reduce forces is, is commonly accepted, but 
uh, recommending shoes, it seems to be tricky for a lot of people, but I use it with the same rationale. Um, and based on the recent systematic reviews, we know that we can actually shift forces. If we talk about a specific example and we take someone with patellofemoral pain, for instance, how would you start in someone to try and look at that and, and manage that by changing the shoe to help change the forces? Yeah, the gradual transition is key. And, and like you you just said, change the forces. Uh, in the case of shoes, you're taking forces somewhere and you're shifting them somewhere else. Um, so you need to make sure that there's no transition injury to another body part. In this case, the foot, the Achilles tendon, the calf muscle, because I'm shifting load away from the knee. But if my clinical, my treatment priority is to reduce forces in the knee, then I'm willing to make that transition and get enough time for those other structures to adapt. Um, there's a systematic review by uh, Joe Warren and Allison Gruber. They recommended a minimum of four to eight weeks transition. I mean, it depends, again, on the scale, right? If, if I look at the minimalist index, and I'll give you an example of a patient I saw this week uh, with uh, persistent knee injuries. He was wearing 30% shoes on the minimalist index, and we decided to go to a 70%, just discussing uh, about his preferences and what could be the approach. So we decided, okay, let's go to a 70%. So that's a change of 40% on the index. And based on the studies that we have right now, I tend to go with estimated transition time of one month for every 10 to 20% change on the index. And in his case, we said, okay, let's go conservative. Let's take four months to transition your full running volume to your new shoes. That means at the end of month number one, you'll be running 25% of your weekly volume with the 70% shoes and 75% of your running volume with your previous shoe and we're adding 25% per month or basically 6% a week and that way we can be very gradual and obviously I'll tell that patient you should listen to your body if you feel that you're getting a bit of foot soreness or calf soreness uh, you should just slow down that, that's interesting because I think not many people sort of think about that most runners just look at what is the new shoe right when you see people transition from minimalist to a maximalist shoe, do you still see them getting injured as often? Or do you find that it's more when they go down to more of the minimalist approach where they're more at risk? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, most people out there in society and in the world of running are adapted to traditional, more cushioned shoes. And, and that's 95% of the running footwear market right now. So if you take that level of adaptation and then you're just adding a bit of cushioning, the shift isn't as problematic for most people as going from more cushioning to less. So I still see some injured runners and there's only one study so far that has reported injuries and people transitioning to a bit more uh, maximal issues. The key point, I think, is still that adaptation piece. And we need to make sure that runners still take that time. But typically they'll have less trouble going to a bit more maximalist. However, if we would take just a hypothetical study and say people used to wearing minimal shoes and all of a sudden they transition to highly cushioned maximalist shoes, I'd be curious to see the, the different injuries that we would see in, in that kind of study. So if we've spoken about the knee and how you would change things there, if we move down and look at, say, a perineal tendinopathy, we know that you may not only change someone's shoes, but how would you look at someone's footwear if you were dealing with that type of injury? 
Well, if, if it's a foot injury like that and it's a lateral foot injury, I'll want to address two main components. So I, I want to reduce the stress on the uh, locally, and that would be with adding a bit more cushioning. That's one thing. But at the same time, I don't want that cushioning to be too soft because if it's too soft, it's going to bring the foot into more of an invert position and you'll have to work harder with your everters or the peroneal tendons to control that motion. So in that case, I'll, I'll look potentially for a bit of a wider shoe with a bit more cushioning, but not too soft. Do you tend to have a, an ethos to more towards one or the other? Do you prefer minimalist or maximalist as a, an approach? So in the clinic, I mean, it really depends on, on the patient's goals. It's my main uh, question that I have for people. And like I said, I always address other factors before shoes, but you know, I have specific criteria to get them to change. I use maximally shoes sometimes to protect the foot, right? Someone coming in with a foot injury, I want to decrease the peak pressure on the, the metatarsal heads. Yeah, of course, more cushion shoes, they're going to help you. If you have a, you know, an irritated first MTP joint, uh, you want a stiffer shoe. I always wonder though, like, should we keep them forever or should we just use them as protection modalities on the short term and eventually go back to less being? And I actually prefer that approach. So overall, I tend to prefer less protection. And if people are, are can adapt to that and if they're interested in it, um, then I think it's, uh, it's probably better. It's my preferred approach. I know that there's this concept of having a, a strong foot core so that you strengthen the, the medial longitudinal arch and, and everything so that you can then run more efficiently, but also hopefully reduce injuries. Do you prescribe anything along those lines as well when you transition someone to a minimalist footwear to help with the transition? I mean, this has been tested in, in a few studies, um, especially by, uh, by Irene Davis's group uh, out of Harvard University. Um, if you look at the systematic review by Warren and Gruber, they, they say like there's no consensus on what the transition should be, whether you need a preconditioning program or not. I think we have uh, now six RCTs, if I remember well. Uh, showing that if you transition to minimal issues, just doing that, no exercises necessarily on the side, you can still increase your foot muscle strength and foot muscle volume. So to me in the clinic, sometimes I'll prescribe exercises in combination, but most of the time I'll just very gradually transition and um, wait for those adaptations to happen. As healthcare professional treating runners, we should focus on having stronger feet. I agree with that. As we get more towards master's age or master's level runners, that we tend to lose calf power and therefore having a slightly lower drop shoe tends to make sense because it will maintain some of that, that power for you. Um, so, so yeah, I can, I can see where the reason is there. If we move from just the general runner more towards the, the person who's coming in as a competitive runner or a, a professional maybe, how do you go about that conversation? So if you've got someone who maybe has an injury, but their main goal is performance, what would you look at in those types of runners? I mean, if they have an injury, again, I'll address a bunch of other things. So footwear is going to be secondary in the management of that patient, especially athletes. I mean, athletes, they if you change a little thing in their training, sometimes you can 
you can make a mess. So you want to be very careful with uh, transitioning shoes in athletes. But uh, what I would say, if the objective is performance, I mean, there's a, a bunch of studies out there saying that you know every one percent, uh, every 100 grams in your feet, sorry, uh, equates to one percent of oxygen consumption. So lighter shoes definitely can make you more economical when you run. And that's certainly one thing that I'll address with, uh, with those competitive runners. And the key point is they need to adapt to it. And if when, like when you run a hundred miles a week, it, it gets tricky to, you know, to add more load to a structure. So it needs to be very, very gradual. And as an example, I wouldn't go from a, you know, a shoe that's a, a 50% to an 80% in the course of one season in uninjured runner, like really risky. I mean, it's, Definitely tricky, but the weight of the shoe is a major contributor to uh, performance and the strength of the foot as well. So that's definitely part of my recommendation. And I think most of those competitive runners are, are used to wearing track spikes as well. So they're probably in almost about as minimalist uh, type of shoe that you can think of. So I guess that for those guys, the transition isn't quite so bad. But at the same time, you know, so I, I see a lot of competitive runners who say, you know, I run on the track with my spikes run but i run my longer runs with more cushioning and heavier shoes yeah. and in that case you know they, they tend to say well i can't run my longer runs with more minimalist shoes because my calves can tolerate and in that case it's always a question of adaptation and so you, you did mention that you you slowly you changed the percentage by about six percent a week do you i'm presuming that they don't need a different shoe to Every week, that's six percent different to do that. I'm presuming that they just wear the minimalist shoe for a slowly increasing period of time, uh, along with their older shoe. So, the, well, yeah, that example was about um, going from a shoe that's let's say thirty percent on the index to seventy percent on the index, and I'll be adding six percent per week of training volume with that new shoe. Right. So I'll just go with one shoe that's the 70% on the index and add a certain percentage of weekly volume with it. In athletes, you can do kind of a, the same concept, just adding a few minutes here and there per week of training. With I suddenly had visions. Do we need a new shoe, like a different shoe for each 6%? If yeah. I was selling shoes, I would say, yeah, sure. Please, please buy me uh, 20 pairs yeah. of shoes to make a transition. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure that the shoe companies would, would enjoy that. So we've talked about the fact that we tend to be habituated to a slightly higher shoe or a more cushioned shoe just in, in everyday life. And I think that concept brought up quite a lot in Born to Run, the, the famous book about uh, running in a minimalist shoe. Do you think that there's value behind teaching children at a younger age to, to wear more minimalist footwear? Absolutely. And I, I think it's critical that kids, when they grow up, they get to develop their feet as much as they can uh, without you know, technologies or cushioning. So being barefoot most of the time when, when it's obviously uh, suitable, depending on weather and conditions, there's no evidence on that. Uh, yet at this point, as far as I know, but I think that if we would start kids and teenagers with more minimalist shoes and, and being barefoot a bit more, uh, they would not have the issues of you know transitioning from a traditional shoe to a minimalist shoe that all the adults now have. Because people tend to blame minimalist shoes and they say they're dangerous, but they're not dangerous. It's just because you're so used to your 
cushioning than your traditional shoes that you're not adapted anymore to not having that. Uh, I, I think what you asked there is a, is a key point, and for parents out there, uh, you know, making sure that kids adapt from a very young age to not having so many technologies uh, on their feet uh, could be a key point. And so, for our listeners who are trying to work out how to put this into practice, is there somewhere where they can go where they can rate the shoes and get an idea for amount of the minimalist index of the shoe? Absolutely, Paul. Uh, on the Running Clinic's website, so the runningclinic.com, we have a full section on running footwear. We don't sell shoes. The goal is just to list them. And um, we have now hundreds, if not thousands, of different models that are listed with the minimalist index score. And if your shoe is not listed there, because as you can imagine, there's a lot of models that come out uh, every season. So we can't keep up. But if your shoe is not listed, there's a calculator. So you can just input the weight of the shoe, uh, the stack height, the drop, the um, flexibility rating, and the technologies that you see on the shoe. Click on calculate and uh, you'll get the percentage. So we did have a bit of a discussion beforehand about the, the Nike Vaporfly. Whereabouts did that come out on the, uh, the scale? Yeah, they actually rate thirty-six uh, percent on the scale. Um, so again, zero percent is not minimalist at all. One hundred percent is the highest level of minimalism, like the Vibram Five Finger example. So thirty-six uh, percent for the Vaporfly because they're light. They don't have a lot of, of motion control technologies, but they're thicker. They have a higher drop, and they're stiffer. I know that you sort of moved a little bit away from the footwear recently to look more at osteoarthritis, the effects of running on OA. Could you tell us a little bit about what you, you're doing at the moment in that field? Yeah, we're doing uh, actually um, different studies and unfortunately COVID-19 has impacted the research program. But there's one study that's still going on now that we actually launched uh, recently. And it's a survey, it's an online survey asking people, do you think running is good for your knees or bad for your knees? Uh, so it's assessing the perceptions of the general public and healthcare on running and joint health, knee joint health. And when people respond to that survey, they also have access to an educational module. So it's an international collaboration that we're doing. It's available in seven languages. The goal is to educate people on the current state of research, but also get their perceptions before we educate. Um, so I think it's, it's a really nice uh, study. So I invite your listeners to uh, participate to that one. In terms of the education model at the end, do we think that running is harmful for knees or not? Well, if I tell you, Paul, uh, people would be biased if they answer the <laughs> So I think I'll, I'll keep that one for myself and I'll just okay. uh, tell people to go and tell us what they think and uh, yeah. they can see for themselves. Okay, well, uh, Jeff, it's been great to chat. I'm sure that you're going to be telling us a lot more about running footwear and, and knee injuries in the future. So we'll keep across everything that you're up to. Thanks, Paul, for having me. It was great. And thanks, Joe SPT, for the invite. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT. 
and Facebook. We're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Listener.